thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. When I was there, I thought every F-18 pilot in the fleet should come through and spend a couple hours here. Because when you see how many components are inside, how many hours and hours or sometimes days just to put on a landing gear maybe, I think there's a lot of value in people having that appreciation. Welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. I am your occasional host, Ken Katz, call sign primetime. Today, our guest is well known to all Fighter Pilot Podcast listeners. Welcome, Jello. <laughs> Thanks, primetime. Yeah, you got the tables swapped on me here, huh? Well, before we get to the interview, how did you and I end up on the opposite sides of the mic for? <laughs> well, I think it's because you and I were chatting via what, text or email? And I said, hey, Ken, I'm trying to have something come out every Monday now, and I don't really have anything. Do you have anything? And you said, no, but what if I interview you? Yeah, I thought you certainly have a lot of interesting stuff to say, and not all of it has been said. So I figured that it'd be a good thing to do. Well, that is very true, and I'm glad to sit on this side of it and hopefully be able to relax. Usually I have to think about what to say next and where we're going with the conversation. So I'm just going to crack open a cold one and let's go. Let's do it. So what's doing in your life these days? Well, if you're listening to the show lately, Ken, you know that I'm in this little battle with the FAA and the beard continues to grow longer. So I'm waiting for the VA to get back to me on some paperwork that then I can submit. And then of course the FAA will sit on it for a couple months and who knows at this point, I don't expect to be back in my airline capacity before 2024. And by that time, I'll need training again because I'll be out of currency. So I don't know. I'm just working on podcast stuff and I've got a few trips planned, both personally and professionally. And so I'm just, you know, each day goes by. I'm trying to make the most of it and make a difference and have as much fun as possible. Well, I just returned from Society of Flight Test Engineers International Symposium. It was a great event. This year was located in Annapolis, Maryland, and it was organized by the chapter at Patuxent River. So there was a strong Navy focus. I presented a paper. It was pretty well received. So that's, that's always nice. And it was fun to catch up with a lot of new and old friends. Uh, SFT is sort of a fraternity in a way, as well as a professional organization. Some of those people I've known since Edward. So we're coming up on 40 years that I've known these people. It was just, so you and I had an episode some time back and I was teasing you about a nerdy tail hook. Was that this thing? That was it. In fact, I was telling that to some of the people there and I was saying, you know, we had this conversation and I said, well, you know, I was explaining SFT and saying it's kind of like tail hook. And one of my colleagues looked at me and said, yeah, kind of a nerdy tail hook. So uh, I'm sorry to all who attended. I I was crushed, but no, it was, it was, it's a very funny phrase. It turns out that it's a small world. My guest Divot from episode 147 was there. Ah. And so it was great to catch up with him and, and meet his wife. 
And last week's Fighter Pilot Podcast guest, Yank, was actually the speaker at the banquet. Oh, very good. JJ Cummings, leadership.com uh, pulled through and, and he was there, huh? He was great. He was really good. So uh, he had some great insights on leadership, which was the focus of what he was talking about. And went up and introduced myself and said, you know, we don't know each other, but we certainly now know some people in common. So uh, enjoyable. Glad to hear it. That was the fun part of the last week. There's been some uh, not so good things in my life also. Uh oh. Yeah, yeah. There's a little bit of worry. If you haven't been living under a rock for the last couple of weeks, you know what's going on in Israel. And it happens to be that my youngest daughter lives there now. She had an internship in Israel two years ago, and she really enjoyed it there. And she came home and said she'd like to move there. And I told her, I said, that's nice. I said, if you're going to move there, you really need to serve in the military because that's the formative experience of people there. And if you want to become one of them, you've got to do what they do. And she said, okay. So since last summer, she's been in a uh, pre-military program. And uh, she's getting ready to enter active duty in uh, probably the end of November and start training and uh, likely to be in a combat position. And, Yikes. you know, she's not a girl. She's an adult and she's going to be a soldier, but she's my little girl. And uh, always will be. You're right. So uh, it's a, a little bit of a nerve wracking time. I can imagine, Ken. Well, gosh, my heart goes out to you as it does all Israelis. And on that note, I had someone contact the show because this came up, I think it was on the episode with Flounder and Yank, that just acknowledging what was going on over there and the role that military aviation plays, because that's what this podcast is about. And we don't generally otherwise try to opine on different current events or political issues. And I had someone contact the show who said, you should be ashamed for not taking a stronger stand. And I said, well, I have personal beliefs on a lot of different things that don't come out on the show. And I'm sorry you feel that way. So I was reminded that you, you're darned if you do, darned if you don't. You can't bring up barely anything these days without upsetting or marginalizing one side or the other. But man, that now there's a personal connection, certainly for you. And boy, what troubling times to uh, be involved in that. How is she taking it? Is she excited or scared or just neutral? I think that because she's part of a cohort and they're not in the military, but they're trying to lend a hand, they have a community and purpose. Those are two words that my cousin articulated to me, which I think are very actually apt. And so when you have community and purpose, morale is pretty high. Without getting into the details of the situation and the politics, I think it would be safe to say that most Israelis are fairly disgusted right now with their political leadership, their military leadership, the intelligence community, all of which failed pretty badly. And so they have an attitude of those people on high all screwed up, but we're going to pull through together and make it work from the bottom. Hmm. And uh, they're doing it. I recall a lot of finger pointing at leadership. Of course, uh, the president at the time was, I think, brand new, but also for, I'm thinking about 9-11 and intelligence. And so is this, I don't know, is it similar? Is this their version of a 9-11 where they should have been able to see what was coming and it's a changing event for their nation? I think it's much more traumatic than 9-11 for a couple of reasons. First of all, 
it's a small country. So when 1500 people get murdered and abducted and raped and what have you on a population of 9 million people, that's like 30,000 people in the United States. So think of it as a Korean war worth of casualties happening in one morning. And that's the first thing. The second thing is, is that on, on September 10th, 2001, no one was thinking particularly about an Al-Qaeda attack of that magnitude, but Hamas is not exactly a surprise. And this very large attack was put together, you know, think about the next town over from where you live and a major attack being put together. This is a place that the Israelis should have every time a mouse squeaks, they should know what's going on there. And so it's a gross failure. It's much more traumatic than 9-11. Well, I do not do a great job of watching the news because I can never figure out what's bluster and what's real. And I can't stand the bias of the various channels. So I don't, I'm not going to say I stick my head in the sand, but the end result is I don't end up as informed as maybe I should be on some things, but hard enough to keep doing everything else I'm trying to do. And I just, I don't know, it's awful. And I should know more about it, but I, I now I do, thanks to you, Ken. But good luck to your daughter, golly. Thank you. And everybody who's afflicted by this. You know, I've been listening to the back and forth that you've had about insects in the cockpit. And I got to admit, in in my general aviation flying, that's actually something I'm really concerned about. Oh? Yeah, because, I mean, at least around here, sometimes you'll get wasps or hornets or something like that that'll build nests. And I'm very concerned about having a nest built in an airplane. And, you know, for particularly in the, uh, you know, the way that the cockpits are cooled is there's just a cooling inlet. And if you got a nest of wasps in a cooling inlet in the Cessna or the Piper, you start going down the runway, you know, the air pressure builds up and all of a sudden there's a, uh, a flock of angry, nasty, stinging insects in my cockpit. I'm really afraid of that. So, there are a couple things that we do. We've got covers that go on various things, and uh, we really inspect stuff very closely before we take off precisely for that. Well, if they do get airborne with you, I could see where multiple stings could be an issue, but have you ever had uh, in your mighty Piper Archer a fly or anything else up with you, and how is it done? Because we didn't have too many poignant memories between me, and I think it was Flounder when we were talking about this. I don't remember a fly. I think once or twice a mosquito has gotten in the cockpit, but I don't remember a fly. Those little buggers follow me everywhere. I hate mosquitoes. Yeah, they're pretty annoying. But that's just an annoyance. It's the hornets or wasps or something that might get in or might build a little nest and block up a pedo tube. Yes. We actually did get a bird's nest in the tail of our club's Mooney. Oh. And that was not a good thing. No. Well, that tells you people aren't flying the Mooney enough. Well, or it just got up in there. You know, we, we really try to close up the airplane, do things like close up the cowl flaps. That's a perfect place to build a nest and it's warm and it's uh, shielded from the rain. So we, you know, close that up. It's definitely something to think about. Okay. Why don't we get to some listener questions? Yeah, that's a good idea. All right. Let's see what are the latest listener questions that we have here. Okay. The first one that I have is from Stefan Souter. I hope I'm pronouncing that name right. And Stefan, if I'm screwing it up, my apologies. And this was addressed, obviously, Jello, to you. Have you or one of your former F-14 crewmates ever heard if there was a German Navy or Air Force guy flying the Tomcat? Ah, 
Well, so obviously I knew about these questions, so I did some research. I asked around to my F-14 TomCast buddies and a few others, and sorry, Stefan, but no, none of them have ever heard of any like exchange type uh, German or Navy or Air Force pilot flying the Tomcat. But recently on the F-14 TomCast episode four, Crunch and Bio's guest Slammer talked about doing a debt to Germany when the Iron Curtain fell and they started flying against the MiG-29. And he talked about flying the F-14 with a German backseater just on sort of a dog and pony show. And uh, he had a good story about letting him, quote unquote, fly it from the back seat, even though there was no flight controls in the back. And so there's at least been German pilots in Tomcats, but it doesn't sound to me from those that I've asked that there were ever like exchange pilots. Well, the next question is from William Oliver. And William writes, I am a high school freshman whose dream is to be a military pilot, hopefully a fighter pilot. Sorry, Ken. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Is there a preferable path to become a fighter pilot, whether it's a service academy or ROTC? And is it true that academy graduates get first choice at occupations? Well, the last question is an easy one. And Ken, you can tell me if I'm wrong. But So I didn't go to either academy, but I don't think that is true. So no, I think that is not correct. I think it's a question of they rank all the graduates at the academy, just like they do in ROTC. And they all put in their requests or dream sheet, as we call it. And then they go down and they try to match as many as they can. And the better you do, the better your chances are. But no, I, I don't think that's correct. Uh, would you disagree with me on that, Ken? Well, I believe that in my era that all physically qualified graduates of the Air Force Academy could attend flight training. Oh, wow. But th I know that's not the case now. No. So that's it. I also, I have a thought for William here, which is, first of all, there's no real path, if you will, out of a commissioning source to become a fighter pilot. There is a path to become a pilot. And then based on how you do in flight training and, and what are your preferences are, you may become a fighter pilot or you may become a transport pilot or a helicopter pilot or a bomber pilot. But there's you don't graduate the academy and say, I'm off to become a fighter pilot or ROTC. In fact, if you go to the academy or join ROTC, there's no guarantee that you'll go to flight school. If you go to OTS in the Air Force or OCS in the Navy, I believe that contractually, if you have that in your contract, you will go to flight school. But for ROTC or the academy, there's no guarantee that you're going to go to flight school. I believe you are correct, Ken. And if you look at his email, he says, is there a preferable path? And so my answer to you, William, would be if you can go to one of the service academies, I would encourage it because you will be more ingrained or invested or inculcated or indoctrinated, maybe. I don't know which of those big fancy words, but one or all of those will help you to just be a better, I would say, officer from what I can tell just from my own experience in watching Naval Academy, mostly graduates who I was peers with, and the things that they learned compared to what I learned in just the two years of ROTC, I think in many ways served them better as officers. So if your goal is to be an Air Force or Navy officer and you want to be the best possible officer you could be, yes, I'm sorry to all my ROTC friends out there, but I do think an academy is a better preference if you can get it. I was not able to based on my academic and test scores. 
And so if that ends up being true for you, you can still succeed as an ROTC graduate. I certainly did. But to Ken's point, if you want a guarantee, there really isn't maybe other than OCS or OTS, but also there's one more, Ken, and I think the platoon leaders class through the Marine Corps still offers an aviation guarantee. At least it did when I was looking around at my options. But And there's one more thing. If you enlist in the Army in the pilot warrant officer ah. training program, you are definitely going to flight school, assuming that you get that far in the program. Well, but you have to, of course, physically qualify and, and qualify on various tests. But yeah, he he should know, William should, all of that before he ever signed up. And you're right. He could go from high school to flight school in the Army. Now, you won't be flying a fighter in the Army, but flying a Blackhawk or a Chinook or an Apache would be pretty cool, at least in my opinion. He did put the hopefully a fighter pilot that I interrupted your email with uh, in parentheses and the word hopefully. So, you know, maybe there's some flexibility there. But anyway, good question. Final question from uh, Chris Manzano. I just watched Top Gun Maverick for like the 10th time, and I wonder what would happen if we did steal an enemy aircraft and flew it back to the U.S.? Or landed it in one of our carriers. I know we've done this before, I believe with a MiG. Well, Ken, the only one time I know we did this was when Clint Eastwood stole the MiG-31 Firefox in 1982. He landed it on a big ice flue or flow, I never know how to pronounce that, and refueled and took it home. But uh, no, Hollywood aside, I don't know what kind of craziness is going on out there. I'm not familiar with any actual successful thievery of enemy aircraft. I know in the past we've had enemy aircraft and even flown them, but I'm not sure if they were stolen or borrowed or bought from other countries or what. But I guess, what was the question again? What would happen? What would happen? Yeah. Well, you'd have to have a pretty good cover story because you'd need to explain, I guess, if you were to get caught or if it was discovered, even if it's a country like Russia or China. I mean, we still have diplomatic relations and a lot of that is other than military economic and otherwise, you'd, we'd have to be able to justify it if we got caught. And if you did get it, what would happen? You'd have to fly it somewhere and keep it secret and take it apart and study it. I, I don't know. I don't feel like I'm giving a very good answer here, Ken. Well, I've got a couple thoughts. First of all, we've certainly had people fly adversary aircraft us in the past, but those were defectors. They weren't an American going in and stealing them. They were defectors. For example, well, two of the most well-known cases are in uh, the mid-1960s, an Iraqi pilot stole a MiG-21, flew it to Israel, and that ended up uh, in the United States. It's now in the Israeli Air Force Museum, that airplane. And uh, in, I believe it was 1976, a Soviet pilot flew a MiG-25 to Japan. Victor Belenko? Belenko or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how to pronounce it. Apologies. So... You know, we've gotten airplanes by defectors. Now, there's another interesting case. In, in World War II, Bob Hoover escaped from a German POW camp or something like that, was on the run, went to a Luftwaffe base and stole an airplane and flew it to freedom. <laughs> How do I not know that? Bob Hoover is like a legend in an air show circuit, but I guess I don't know too much about his military background. Yeah. So that's happened, but... okay. I mean, I think that one thing would be if you flew, if someone's going to bring an airplane in, one of the concerns that I would have is you better show that you don't have hostile intent by doing something like lowering the landing gear and doing what you're told. Because in certain situations, 
you could get shot down either by the side you're defecting from or from the the side that you're defecting to. Again, that's what Clint Eastwood had to deal with. So yeah, scary stuff. No, I mean, it's a good question. I My guess also is there's a lot of stuff related to activities like this that frankly, the public just doesn't know about and probably shouldn't. So I'm not privy to any plans or reality of anyone stealing the MiG. So I'm just guessing here, Chris. I'm sorry. I can't give you a better answer. I also believe in sometime in the 1980s, I believe I've read that somehow or another, we snatched a uh, MI-24 Hind attack helicopter. I don't remember whether that was in Africa someplace or whether that was in Afghanistan, but I think we sent in a Chinook from the Night Stalkers. But it wasn't that we stole it. It's that it was it crashed or something like that. Okay. And we went in and, and uh, rigged it up and pulled it out. I vaguely recall reading that. Okay. So good question. Interesting subject. For sure. It'd be fun to get somebody on the show who could talk in a little more depth on that, actually. I think, unfortunately, that's one of those areas where those who know don't talk and those who talk don't know. <laughs> I, wait a minute. What are you trying to say? I do a lot of talking on this show, Ken. So yeah, I'm but you, to... you you know, you know, but not covert things. <laughs> okay. Well, let's get to the subject of the interview. And that subject has to do with your last assignment in the Navy, which was to the Fleet Readiness Center Southwest. And ah, yes. I guess we start off with the obvious question. What was or is the Fleet Readiness Center Southwest? Oh, yes. Very good. Well, you're right, Ken. I mean, right, as much as I've done this show over the last six years, I only just interject little personal anecdotes and stories here and there. So I know I've been on many other podcasts and people have asked me about my career and I'm writing my memoirs. So some of that will be there too. But I think this is a good question. And, and, and you being the engineer side of our show a little bit, you have other interests that you pursue for your episodes too, but I think this is suitable for us. So the Fleet Readiness Center Southwest is just one of many fleet readiness centers all around the country. And in fact, we have different parts and debts and things in other parts of the world like Japan. And the listeners, I think, long-term listeners are familiar with my wacky analogies. So I've been thinking about this discussion and I think I have one that'll work that might work more than once. And that is to relate this to medicine or our personal health, right? So if you think about the reasons people go to either someone who helps them or a hospital, there's different reasons why they do that. And the depot, as we call it, I think of is like a specialty hospital. There are people there and equipment there, and there are other processes and things that happen there to really overhaul aircraft or fix them, repair them, make modifications, et cetera. And it's a very specialized location and it doesn't need a lot of pilots, but it does need some. And so, like I said, the physical location is important as well. And I think we're going to unpack some of all this. And maybe those who are more involved in the actual administrative and (laughs) some of the actual deeper meanings and and funding could probably be a bit more articulate. But from a pilot's point of view, it's where the heavy maintenance occurs on different aircraft. So where is the Fleet Readiness Center Southwest located? Well, the Southwest version is located at North Island Naval Air Station 
on the north part of Coronado in San Diego. And if people are not familiar, it's the little peninsula or the little spit of land that in fact creates the San Diego Bay. So you have to come up and around that. If uh, For those who come in and out on ships, they have to go around Coronado and that northern tip is North Island, appropriately named. And what exactly was your billet in uh, the Fleet Readiness Center Southwest? So I was one of the handful of F-18 pilots and they did have other aircraft, but the F-18 was one of them. And so instead of always asking guest pilots to come over and help, we did have a couple that could help run the FA-18 overhaul work that was done there. And then we also flew the post-maintenance check flights when the aircraft were done with their repairs. And we also did the deliveries. So I might have an airplane that came off the line that I would fly, and then I might fly it again and again to work with the maintenance folks to make sure it's in fact good to go. And then I would deliver it back to wherever it belonged. Some just as close as Miramar, just a few miles up the road, and some as far away as Oceana. And so I would fly all the way across the country and then fly back commercially. But we didn't fly, for example, any jets over to Japan because they had their own depot facility there. And we, I use the word depot, Ken, somewhat interchangeably here. And that's, I think, what it used to be called way back in the day. But it is FRC or Fleet Readiness Center, but we always call the work depot level work. I believe that in my era, they were called NADEPs for Naval Aviation Depots. Yeah, D-E-P-O-T. It's pronounced in different ways, but yes, that is, uh, I think, correct. Right. And the Air Force has, and the Army for that matter, have similar outfits. Now, let's talk about how the depot fits into the overall picture of naval aviation maintenance. And it's by the way, no different in the Air Force. You have squadron level maintenance or organizational maintenance, you have intermediate maintenance, and then you have the depot, which is the third line. So what does each level do and where is it located and how does that work? Well, I am not the expert necessarily on exactly the things they do, but I'll give you again a pilot's overview of this and I'm going to stick with my health, if you will, analogy. So imagine you are in the kitchen chopping something and you cut your finger. Well, you're probably perfectly capable of putting a little uh, disinfectant on there, go getting a Band-Aid and putting it on and then you're good to go. So not to marginalize the squadron level, if you will, but that's sort of the way I think of the things that happen within the squadron as far as to an aircraft, they are able to handle. So it could be a broken airframe mounted accessory of some sort, like an AMAD we used to have in the F-18, or it could be a generator or a radar or landing gear or a simple light bulb or anything that is at the operational level. They can generally do those repairs themselves, similar to my Band-Aid analogy. And it might be that they need to swap a box, if you will, or a part with the local AIMD, as we used to call it, right? And so maybe I have it already on my own shelves as VFA whatever. And so I just pull off a new one. Maybe it's a light bulb or whatever it is. And I put it in and boom, we're right back in service. Off we go. But at each fleet concentration area, we do have that more intermediate location, AIMD as I'll call it. And now that might be something a little bigger. So in my health analogy, maybe I don't cut my finger, maybe I really do something bad, but I don't need a specialty hospital. Maybe I can go down to a little ER clinic and I can go in and they can suture it up for me, let's say. 
And so now I go down, I spend an hour and a half waiting just to be seen and they disinfect it better. They put sutures on it. They wrap it up. They give me maybe some antibiotics and then they send me home. So an aircraft that has a significant problem, well, moderately significant, let's say, might have to be towed over to do that or the component itself might need to be removed, sent over there for them to fix it and brought back and put back in the airplane. So you have your local at the squadron level, and then you have your intermediate. And I'll pause there in case I've lost you or the listeners here, Ken. No, that makes perfect sense. So now we're on the second level, which is the first level is in the squadron. The second level is at the base level or at the ship level. Yes. And we're greatly simplifying this, but yes. And with all of this, by the way, there's all this accounting that has to happen. If I take them a broken radar, I have to bring them one before they give me a new one. On certain parts, I don't get a different one. I get the same one back. And so I have to turn it in and that aircraft is down while it's without a radar, let's say. And then once they fix that aircraft's actual radar, then it comes back and we put it in and hopefully it works and off we go. But you make an important distinction, which is if I'm on the carrier, I can't just go to my Naval Air Station Lemoore AIMD and get whatever it is I need. All of that needs to be on the ship. And in fact, some of those commands will send people out there. And it's almost like, I don't know, have you seen these commercials where this uh, football player has a Taco Bell in his own house? And it seems kind of crazy, but it's, uh, you know, the idea being is that there's someone in your house, but they're providing this service. And so I kind of think of the AIMD as like having a Taco Bell in your house is, hey, I, I want this thing. Okay, well, here you go. And this is what it costs you. But wait, you're in my house. Aren't we all one big team? Yeah, but it's just the accounting of the part and how many do you go through and why are we having so many and the money's got to have a paper trail, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, that service comes out on the ships with us uh, on the carrier. And AIMD is Aircraft Intermediate Maintenance Department. I believe. I believe that's, yeah, I believe that's correct. And I'm not sure if that's still what they call them, for example, in Lemoore. It's been a little while and my brain has had a lot of other trauma to it in the last seven years since I've retired. So, but that's generally, even if it's called something different, that's the point is you've got the ability to put a Band-Aid on at your own house. You can go down the street to the little place that'll take care of you. And then now moving on to the fleet readiness centers, that will be more like the big hospitals. Now, before we go to the fleet readiness center or the depot, it's also worth mentioning, I think, that the intermediate maintenance departments, whether it's in the Air Force or the Navy, also have just whole capabilities that squadrons don't have. For example, they may have a paint hanger or they may have fabrication abilities. They can actually make metal assemblies fixed composite materials. And squadrons, which tend to be more smaller organizations responsive to getting out, generating sorties every day, they don't have those kind of capabilities. Instead, they're centralized at the base or the ship level. Well, and part of that is for efficiency, but part of it also is just the, hey, not every squadron always needs someone who has the ability to do the, like you just said, all those different activities. So if you put them in one place, then they can be more responsive. And in fact, sometimes the ship will have specialized people that will come out to help with some of the pods that we use, like the different infrared or whatever. So yes, again, I'm oversimplifying this. I, th I think, believe the topic was my last position at the depot. So we could have a whole episode clearly on all this maintenance side of things. But from a former maintenance officer and a pilot's perspective, I know 
to your point, you've got the first level, which is within the squadron, the second level, which is still within the base or the ship. And then this third level that we'll get to and how I had a role in that. So let's get to the depot now, which is heavy maintenance. Yeah. So I think of the depot, again, sticking with my analogy, as a specialized hospital. And why do people go to hospitals, Ken? Well, they go for a couple reasons. One is they go to die. I mean, I'm sorry, but that's just basically true. And that is also true for aircraft. But particularly when you get older, you go because now you need that preventative care to make sure that you can live your fullest life. And I'll come back to that in a moment. Another reason you go to the hospital is let's say I didn't just cut my finger or cut it deep enough that I need sutures. Let's say I cut it off. Well, okay, that's bad, clearly. And so now you might go to the hospital to have something significant done based on an accident. And then the other reason is, well, maybe you just go because that's where your doctor or nurse practitioner is, and you need to go every so often to just make sure that everything's running in tip-top shape. And I don't know about you, Ken, but the older I get, the more I feel like I need to do that. And so the depot is similar. Aircraft that are approaching their end of flight life, if you will, will go there and they'll either be stricken, which means they're removed from our books and are no longer one of our aircraft in service, and in which case the salvageable parts will sometimes be taken off and put back in the circulation. The aircraft itself might be made to look whole so it can go sit on a stick somewhere or in a museum, or it might just be completely broken up into little bits, everything that can be recycled is, or it might just be put in a uh, facility maybe here at North Island or out in the boneyard, as we've talked about on a previous episode, where it now just sits there and it's just kind of waiting for some future disposition. So the aircraft that can live a little bit longer or maybe their service life will be extended, which is, I guess, maybe sort of where my health uh, analogy breaks down a little bit, but maybe not if you get a new hip, maybe, or I don't know, something else. But some of these aircraft, they show up, they're only supposed to live for 8,000 flight hours. Well, if we do this, this, and this, we can get them to 12,000 flight hours. And so that's one of the things, those flight hour extensions that happen at the depot. I've actually been to the uh, Fleet Readiness Center Southwest. And what I saw was that Hornets and other aircraft were essentially being taken apart and put back together. And so what was happening that I saw is they were doing a lot of structural inspections, looking for fatigue damage, cracks. Of course, a Hornet landing on a carrier goes through a lot of abuse and a Hornet pulling seven or eight or however many Gs that you pull, that's also a lot of abuse. So there's very detailed structural examination. And and I believe what they're doing is building up a database of structural condition of the aircraft. Well, they're certainly taking readings based on flight hours and component usage and everything else. But I think what you're articulating there is one of my analogies of you go to the doctor every so often for a checkup. And indeed, an F-18, well, let's just stick with that. Although the depot, by the way, does do also SH-60s and MH-60s now, actually, as well as, let's see, I think they're doing the Osprey there now. That started since I left. And I think maybe the F-16 that the Navy has that we got some of from the Air Force will start going there as well for their life extension. But what you're talking about is every four years. So right, if I fly an airplane in a squadron, when it lands, my plane captain will do a certain level of inspection on that 
and a turnaround inspection. So we'll check the fluid levels. We'll check certain things just to make sure everything's good. But then every week, there's a slightly deeper inspection. And then every month, there's a deeper one. Every six months, every year. Well, Ken, every four years or so, it needs to go to the depot. And someone from the squadron will fly it down. It'll be inducted. They'll look at it. They'll pull panels off like you're articulating. They'll look at all these high-use landing hook point type attachment points, landing gear points, the actual structure of the aircraft itself, what I would equate to the spine in us. It would be like someone, hey, well, I'm going to go in for a doctor's visit, but now they're going to actually start exploring around inside my body. So again, this analogy is not perfect, but bear with me. So, hey, we're going to look around at Jello's spine. Okay, it looks pretty good. Oh, he's got a little arthritis over here or he's missing something over there or whatever. So they really do open it up. They look at everything. It is, of course, written down what they're supposed to look for. And then they write down what they found. And certain things are, again, it comes down to money, are accounted for in this costly inspection. And they'll fix it if they find it. But if there's other things, maybe certain corrosion, maybe other issues, that the depot may go back to the squadron and say, hey, we discovered this. And you're going to have to pony up the the money, essentially. And again, it's just a sort of a paper transaction to pay for it. But the point being is now it counts against the squadron for how well did they take care of it or not. And so money ends up being sort of a unit of measure for whether we're going through components or how we're taking care of our aircraft. Thinking back to our episode on non-destructive testing, depots tend to be centers of excellence for non-destructive testing because they just do a ton of it there to assess the structural health of the aircraft. Yeah. Now, another thing they'll do there, Ken, and it's again, back to my cut your whole finger off part of this parallel, is we've had many aircraft come into the FRC Southwest. In fact, part of the location to your earlier question, decision on that is because when the carriers pull up, if there is an airplane that cannot be flown, they can crane it off and they can put it on a little tow truck or whatever it needs and they can drag it straight over to the depot. So it's right there, right where it needs to be. And so I assume there are all similar facilities at other places where there are aircraft carriers that can pull in. And so if let's say an aircraft is involved in a mishap or maybe it catches on fire. Well, if it was on the ship, we just talked about that. If it's still up in Lemoore, they might have to put it on a truck or a train and ship it down. And so I think longtime listeners have remember my story. I actually passed a jet on the road, had the wings taken off, but it was the jet that happened to have my name on it. And it was just a one in a million chance, Ken, that that airplane and I were on the same highway at the same time. And I looked over and saw it. It was hilarious. But anyway, it was coming all the way from the East Coast to, I don't know if it was FRC Southwest at that time or not, but that facility. And that's where it was getting fixed. It was on Interstate 5 when I was driving next to it. And it had had a very hard landing and it could not be flown again. So it was on its way down there to be repaired. And so when I left the depot and retired out of that job, they had, and maybe you've seen this in auto repair facilities where a car is in a front end collision or a rear end collision, and they'll save the other part of it and graft two together to make one. They were doing that. I can't remember if it was a F back and an E front, I think it was, but they had the cockpit, let's say of an E and the fuselage of an F and they were mating them together and going to turn it into a new single seat Super Hornet that otherwise the two jets would have been stricken. But in doing a little Frankenstein project, they were able to turn them into one. And I don't know what happened to that. Maybe a listener can write in and let me know and we can update them next time. But 
you should have helped flown by now because that was, I retired in early 17 and it was already in the jig getting put back together and hopefully it's flown by now. I think that's a great analogy about an auto body shop. Another thing about depot maintenance is it's a great opportunity when the aircraft's taken apart to modernize it. For example, you know, it might have a, I'm picking something out of the sky here, a dash six environmental control unit on it. And the Navy has now gone to a dash seven because the new unit is more reliable or solves some problem. And they will install the new unit as part of depot maintenance or a new radio or wiring for a new weapon or something like that. You make a great point, Ken. And it's one of the things we always overlook. And I sometimes wonder on this show, like, I wonder how people follow me when I say I read the book. Right. In other words, when you go to fly in an airplane, you read, quote unquote, the book. And that book is the maintenance diary, if you will, for that particular aircraft. And so to your point, Ken, the closer you get to a jet going off to depot, the more and more of these entries that you'll find for upgrade to this or replace that. And there's all these bulletins, basically, that when it goes in for this, will go into the book. And then when you get the jet back, it has to fly so many times before all these gripes that are signed off and done will age out of the book. You don't keep the entire history in the book that the pilot reads. You keep those somewhere else. But I think it's what, 10 flights in the Navy is what you have to fly before those older gripes, if they're signed off, will start making their way out. And so, yes, a lot of updates will happen if the funding is there, right? They won't just upgrade it because it's something new, just like on somebody's mind or whatever. It's not like, you know, when you send your car in, you just say, Hey, while you're at it, you know, put this new thing on it. It's obviously well thought out. It has to be funded. And, uh, it usually is the whole fleet, not just particular to a squadron that might want, right. They're not going to send their jet to the depot and say, Hey, while you're at it, give us that new fancy AESA radar. <laughs> no, no. What will happen, and I say this because uh, you know we see this in industry, is our military customer may note that, for example, they have a reliability problem with a certain system on the aircraft or maintenance requirements are too high. And they will fund us typically to develop a better system. And then we'll deliver that system. And it will typically be, if it's a major system, it's difficult to install that at the organizational level. Squadrons don't have that capability and it would it would waylay an airplane. So typically that kind of stuff will be installed in the depot maintenance. And what the military will do is they will have a long wish list of things that they want to improve on the aircraft. Some of those things improve operational capability. Some of those things improve reliability and maintainability. Some will improve safety. And they'll basically rack and stack them according to the value that they give and the cost that they have. So the top thing of the list is going to be the improvement that costs very little money and has a huge amount of payoff. And you work your way down. And at some point you run out of money and you cut it off. And that's the to-do list of improvements. And, and a lot of those things are very unsexy. They might be a new landing gear strut or a, a part of an environmental control system. But it all, you know, these are immensely complicated aircraft. And, oh, absolutely. Uh, for every sexy, you know, radar improvement, there's an awful lot of mechanical subsystems that have to be addressed. Well, and as we have, I think, uh, flirted with on this show, there's a big difference between important and interesting. And I get pitched a lot of times, hey, I, I do this and I'd like to come on the show. And I have to tell them that. I say, you know, 
clearly what you do is very important, but I just, for the sake of a podcast, not sure an episode on that would necessarily get people's attention. And we have some diehard fans who I appreciate who like anything we put out. And we've, we've explored the dance floor pretty well, I feel like, Ken, and you certainly have too. But yeah, there are all these elements of an airplane that are vitally important, just like there are elements of our body that are vitally important, but they're not as well known as the bicep or the, you know, if you're working out, for example, or, um, you know, the radar or the ejection seat. You've got long drawns, you've got the hydraulic actuators, you have all these different things. And, and there are hundreds of thousands of different skews. I, I don't know if that's the exact term, but I hopefully people are familiar with that term of the different things that go into an airplane. And I don't know if this will come up or not, Ken, later, but I'll just say it here. I used to think when I was there, I thought every F-18 pilot in the fleet should come through and spend a couple hours here. Because when you see how much work is put into an aircraft, and that's true really at the manufacturing of it also, but certainly at the depots. But when you see how many components are inside, how many hours and hours or sometimes days just to put on a landing gear maybe. And I'm not suggesting that pilots fly these aircraft with disregard of the value or their own safety or anything else. But boy, for me, it really made me think I'm going to just be extra careful because I know how much work it is to build one of these and keep them flying and how expensive and complicated they are. And if I'm not just being absolutely on top of my game, I'm taxiing and going too fast and going to the dirt, you know, that's really going to set people back. And now it's going to have to go back down to the depot and go through all that again. So I think there's a lot of value in people having that appreciation. And an outfit like a fleet readiness center is a, is part of the military and there are, you know, as a military officer who commands it, but is most of the work, the maintenance work being done by military members or is it civil service employees of the Navy? It would be civil service and contractors. So we had, as you correctly stated, a military organization and several military people, including me, but also enlisted and chiefs and different ranks and rates. And we worked very carefully with those artisans, as we called them, who did the actual work. And again, because they're so specialized, you wouldn't want to necessarily take a Navy sailor, in my opinion, and train her or him to be very good at composite materials or some very fine detail of an engine for one tour when they're going to go back to a squadron and have to be very broadly good at a lot of things. So we can afford to have people whose specialty, and they might spend an entire career just on the, I don't know, rockets that blow off the canopy in the event of a ejection. And they know all about how to install it just right and torque it and what it should look like and what it doesn't look like if it's wrong. And so you've got all those very specialized people that we titled artisans. So how did you personally fit into this process that's happening at the Fleet Readiness Center? So my role was in the F-18 department. I was one of the pilots, like I said, but I was also involved in a lot of the day-to-day processes and meetings that took place for our department. Now, our department was led by a civilian who had been a military maintenance officer or professional of some sort. And so I didn't have military authority over Dave, it was his name. And I didn't try to tell him how to run it because I had just shown up. And frankly, I knew I was going to retire. So I won't say on the short bus as far as just, you know, didn't care. But I also didn't want to get involved to the level of trying to figure out exactly what he's doing because they have processes that work. And I just wanted to be an asset to him if he had problems. So I thought of myself more 
as an obstacle remover or an enabler when they had something they needed, whether it was, hey, the airplane showed up from the squadron, it's missing this part. Hey, Vincent, can you reach out to the squadron because we're not getting any answers from them? Or, hey, this is the issue we're having in this particular regard. You know, how can I help? This is me now saying. And then also, I made it known to them that, look, your work is important and the quality of your work because, yeah, we're going to send this back to the fleet and they need to be able to go do what they got to do. But before that ever happens, I have to fly this thing. And so does Vern. Vern was from episode three. Some listeners might remember. He and I were there together and Sunshine. And so we would fly these aircraft for the very first time, Ken, when they came out of this heavy maintenance. And granted, they'd been put through a lot of different inspections. But ultimately, I was putting myself in that and going out and flying it in some cases for the first time in a long time. And I wanted them to understand that, yes, it's important for the fleet, but it's also important for us right here at FRC Southwest, the quality of your work. If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Air Corps Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com slash careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com slash careers. Visit today. So let's talk about that, if you will, final exam that you're giving the airplane. This perhaps older Hornet, but it's been completely overhauled and it's got a nice fresh coat of paint, may even have a little bit of that new airplane smell and it's been, you know, reworked and overhauled and it looks pristine and they tow it out and put it on the line and do all the, you know, inspections that have to be done. And uh, it's time to do the first post maintenance check flight. So what is a post maintenance check flight like? What's the, as we would say in flight test, the test card? So in a squadron, for comparison's sake, if they called me upstairs and said, hey, Commander Aiello, we've got this airplane. It needs a pro, as we would call it. And it's for this reason. Can you go take it? I'd say, sure. And I'd run out and go fly because that's way better than sitting at your desk. That's a whole different story because that airplane probably flew just fine, maybe even as recently as the day before. But certain components, when they replace them or fix them, require a post-maintenance check flight. So maybe if they replace an aileron, let's say, or a rudder or an engine. And so we have history in the squadron on that aircraft. And all I need to know, while anything could break, I'm going to focus on whatever it is they fixed or replaced. And so there's different profiles you can do. A pro C, as we call it, is just the flight controls. And you have, like you said, you have this card deck that you take with you and you check them off one by one. And you really put the aircraft through its paces for flight controls. Now, you might go out on a Pro B, and it might just be about the engines and the fuel system. Or a Pro A is both of those and really everything else. So you're giving it the full once over. And I did Pro A's in the squadron, and I did Pro A's at the depot. 
The difference was the Pro A at the squadron was because either you have to just do one every 365 days, or if the jet didn't fly, if I want to say it was like 30 days, maybe they had a broken engine and a broken landing gear and something else they were waiting on from AIMD. Well, then, hey, it's been 30 days. Can you go fly it? Okay, but you still read the book and you still have the history. So you have that to fall back on. And, and everyone knows the airplane pretty well. So that's, I'm trying to set the stage for you here. Now, at the depot, an aircraft, number one, it comes to us from the squadron. So we don't have, yeah, we have all the books and the history, but we don't really have that embedded knowledge like you do when it's one of your own. But number two, Ken, and this is the big one, is that jet, instead of 30 days, that jet may not have flown in three years. And in fact, my sort of personal best, if you will, I flew a jet, Ken, that the last time it had flown when I flew it was eight years before. It had not flown in eight years. The overhaul it required was so great and there was a delay on parts and funding and everything else. There's always other little hangups. But everything it needed took so long that when I flew it, it had been eight years. And I hate to burst your bubble, but it did not have a fresh coat of paint. In fact, it was still in this weird greenish yellow primer because they don't know if they're going to have to dig into it based on what I find before I go fly it. Now, do you need a special qualification and special training to do these uh, post-maintenance check flights? Yes. In a squadron level, they won't just give these qualifications to anyone. You have to have so many hours and then you have to go to the simulator with another FCF pilot to make sure they agree. And then you go out and do one together where, especially in a single seat squadron where I was, I'll take a good airplane, let's say, and you might take, if you're the new FCF pilot, also a good airplane, but you'll go out and do that whole pro a book. And I'll just fly next to you and kind of watch and listen. And we'll, of course I've briefed it ahead of time. And so as you say to me, okay, now I'm doing this, I'll fly next to you in formation, but you do your own thing. And I watch you. And if you have a question or an issue, then we can handle it together. And when we come back, then you're good to go. You get signed off and then you now have that capability. So I had that capability at NSOC, now Nautic up in Fallon, when I was assigned to FRC Southwest. And so that was the only call I needed. But when I got there, the outgoing pilot, who was then me giving this to Sunshine and Vern when they got there after me, was, hey, look, this isn't just a regular squadron FCF this is different and here's why. And it's those reasons I just talked to you about. This jet hasn't flown in forever. They've looked at everything. So you have to make sure you're looking at everything. We got to read all the books. You got to talk to whoever's in charge of this particular book. You know, you'll have kind of a team of people who take one under their wing, so to speak, and walk it through the process. And they check it out way before you do. They do everything short of taking off before the pilot ever gets in it. And so when you go to take off, you just, you're a little more attuned to it, but you've also had that pep talk by others in the program to say, hey, it's a regular squadron FCF qual, but it's a little different here and here's why. You know, we say a Hornet or a Super Hornet, but as you well know, there are a lot of different models and mods of these things. There's A's and A pluses and A plus pluses and B's and C's and D's and and those all have different blocks and E's and F's and those all have different blocks. So there's probably, I don't know, there were probably 15 or 20 different types of Hornets. And you as a, you know, if you're a squadron pilot, your squadron might have only one type of aircraft typically and one block. But as a 
FRC pilot, you may have to deal with 15 or 20. Did that require special qualification and training to fly so many different variations of the same airplane? Not so much at the depot in so much as anyone has more than one NATOPS qual. So when I, again, left NSOC to go to the depot, I was already A through F NATOPS qualified, meaning I could fly in an FA-18A one day with its most basic rudimentary radar and engines and flight control instruments and everything else. And the very next day, in fact, sometimes the same day, I could get in the latest AESA-equipped modernized cockpit FA-18F with a backseater. And it was on me as a professional pilot, Ken, to just make sure that I recalled all the differences and the limitations of those two. And so to your point, we didn't fly a lot at the depot. Now, a regular squadron tour, when I was a young lieutenant, 250 hours was a pretty good year. And later on, 150 hours was sort of a, yeah, that's pretty much a fleet standard. I only flew 60 hours my last year at the depot, but none of it was tactical. Yes, I was a Navy FA-18 pilot, but I never flew in formation. I never flew barely at night except on my deliveries if we got a little delayed and that was okay. I didn't do any air to air or air to ground. I did a little bit of low altitude flying just for fun over the water once in a while, but I really wasn't tactical at all. I was very much an administrative pilot, Ken. So my only job was to just keep up on all that. And we kept each other, Sunshine, Vern, and I, you know, that was our way of, hey, man, have you taken your test this week, right? So we'd have an immediate action test we might take once a week or a quiz on something. And and that was part of Vern's role as the NATOPS officer was he made sure that we were all up to speed on, hey, this aircraft has the 402 engines. So remember, the limitations are these, not that. Or, hey, this is a Super Hornet, which, hey, Jello, I haven't flown a Super Hornet in a month, but you have. Why don't you take this one? And then when it's ready, I'll go get a currency flight in it kind of thing. So we would monitor each other's currency and proficiency. And it was up to us as legitimately NATOPS qualified to just make sure we were prepared to fly whatever was unique in that particular aircraft. Can you talk me through a post-maintenance check flight from when you strap on in to when you put it in the chocks, shut it down, and and unstrap? What are the different maneuvers that you do and the different uh, systems operations? Sure. So, for example, that day when I flew that aircraft for the first time in eight years, it started, of course, days before, hey, this thing's getting close. Who's going to do it? Okay, Jello's going to do it. Okay. And the day of, like, hey, we think it's ready. Okay, we'll put it on the flight schedule. You know, we put it on the day before for that day. And then, you know, generally I would call in that morning because uh, if, you know, you might be in a different part of the facility. Hey, are you guys on track? now? Nah, give us an extra hour or whatever. But once you're finally ready, you go out there and you might even read the book the day before, which is unheard of. But you might just because there's so much in it. And in a squadron, oh, it's 403. I just flew this thing last week. Okay, blah, blah, blah. Here's the pages. Okay, yeah, I'm good to go. But this particular aircraft that had not flown in eight years has such a thick book of the gripes that they've repaired that I might even grab it and go sit in the corner for an hour and look over everything and just make sure it makes sense that when they have a, an outstanding issue on a maintenance action form or a MAF, that the correction for it is actually correct. So in other words, the outstanding thing might be, hey, per bulletin, such and such, repair and replace this component next depot level maintenance. And then down below, it might say, hey, repaired and replaced per such and such. There's all these codes and things. But if, you know, if the gripe is to replace something in the landing gear 
and the response is something about the radar, which by the way, I've never seen, but it could be. Well then hold on guys, what's going on here? Oh yeah, that got transposed. Let's fix that. So I would spend a lot of time looking at the book and I would talk to the people who were sort of shepherding that aircraft. Hey, what have you guys seen? Well, we turned it five times in the last two weeks. And once in a while we get this weird indication. So we want you to look out for that, but we haven't seen it on the last three. Okay, got it. So I'd write that on my kneeboard card. So then let's say the book is good. Everybody's ready. It's fueled. I'm ready. I'll go put my flight gear on like I normally do. And I'll walk out there and I'll set my stuff down next to the jet or even go up and put it inside. And then I walk this thing around, Ken, like I'm going to buy it, right? Because I might buy the farm if I'm not careful. This thing hadn't flown in eight years. So I'm looking at everything and those guys are generally right there. And I might even ask them, hey, what about this? Oh yeah, you know, we just replaced that this morning, but it should be good to go. And to your point, right, it's not a fresh coat of paint because they want to make sure everything's available to be opened up and pulled apart or replaced or whatever. And they paint it after it's had a couple flights and they know it's good to go before they'll send it back. They'll, you know, just paint it a basic gray, even if it's going to the Blue Angels. Although if it goes to the Blues, they'll sometimes just send it in the yellow and let them do it. But for the fleet, it's just pure plain gray and it does look new, but it isn't new because everything that came out of it when it arrived goes back in it. So it's not necessarily all new components, but it's the components that came from it because all of those have a part number associated with that aircraft and the squadron wants back their components because of accountability. So you do a very extensive pre-flight. Then you finally get in and you have external power on the aircraft, which you don't typically have in a squadron, but you might if you've got a low battery or if it's cold or whatever. But for a maintenance check flight, you'll have external power. And so now... It's plugged on, but it's not actually powering the aircraft. So then you give the guy the signal, okay, I'm going to turn that on. And of course, boom, the first thing that happens is a bunch of environmental control service fans, ECS fans will come on. So now it starts getting loud already. So everyone's going to start putting on their ear protection and everything. And so there's a couple things you do just with the external power. And then all of this is literally checklist item by item Almost like for those of you who maybe build Legos, hey, now put this part on this thing. Step seven, do this. Step 25, okay, now put these two parts together that you built in step 25. So each time you're checking this, you're checking that. You might have something where you have to tell the guy you're going to check something because it's a one-time actuation switch and something opens, let's say, on the fuselage. And so he says, yep, it opened. Okay, you close it. Okay, it's closed. And so off you go. So you're checking everything there possibly is. Then you finally start the APU, auxiliary power unit, and then you start both engines. And with both engines online, you actually start them both up. You check a few things. You run the hydraulic systems. You might check the fuel and the oil and a few other things. And then what do you do? You shut down one of the engines. And the reason you do that is you shut it down in such a way where if the engine were to fail in flight, we want to know that these certain switching valves and other components are going to function correctly. So we might starve it of fuel by pushing the firelight, which cuts off a couple of the fuel shutoff valves. And it sits there and it grumbles a little bit, you know, makes all these weird sounds as the fuel kind of drains out of the system. And then finally it just goes, and I'm not very good at sounds, but bear with me. And so all of a sudden you get all these alerts. Hey, you got this problem. You got that problem. Well, yeah, it's because I did that intentionally. And it's what I expect to see. And in fact, Ken, one of the checks is, did you see this caution or warning? Because if you don't, well, that's bad because it tells us pilots that something didn't trigger because we should see that problem alerted to us 
if in fact the aircraft is being starved of fuel. Is that, am I making that? That makes sense. Now, here's my question. It makes perfect sense that you would shut down, let's say one engine and see what you're talking about. Do you then start up that engine and then do the same thing with the other engine? Correct. And the way you start it, as it turns out, is by a crossbleed. So even shutting the engine down is one of the things you need to check. But then what you want to check is not the APU will start it. We already checked that. But you want to run up one of those engines, well, the functioning engine, high enough that it's going to make its own air to turn now the dead engine. And once you have the requisite power to do that or air, of course, you got to tell everybody because you're running the engine up. So nobody should be standing behind the thing. And so you start that engine, but now that you've had the good engine run up, you've got to let it cool down for two minutes before you then shut it down. So yeah, you spend a long time on the ground checking all this out and everything you're checking, especially on an airplane that hasn't flown for eight years. Of course, they've already checked it because they can do that as surrogate pilots, if you will. But what they don't do is they don't do a taxi check or go flying. That's my part. That's where I come in. So once all that is in fact proven to be good, as they have said that it is, because they've checked it a couple of times themselves, then I finally do all the few procedures I need to do normally anyway, like I used to do back in the fleet to make sure the airplane is ready just for regular flight. And then I say, okay, I'm good to go. Pull chocks. And we put down the canopy if we haven't already. And we call air traffic control and we taxi out to the runway. And once we get to the runway, we've got a few more things to do, but we'll get to that in a moment. Let's talk about the taxi for a minute. I assume you're doing steering and brake checks on the way out? We are. And I got to the point when I started doing a lot of pros in the fleet that I would do the same little check anyway, because it's not prohibited to do. And I just thought, well, I'm going to check all these different ways of looking at things anyway, because I just want to know the airplane, especially when I was a maintenance officer, but I just want to know the aircraft is working well all the time. So being a good FCF pilot, I think really makes you a better pilot anyway, because you learn the systems so much better. And I assume that you're also checking, for example, your INS to make sure that you're showing the right velocity and you're showing um, turns and that's being properly represented on your displays. Correct. And some of that is done in flight, but some of that is always done on the ground before you go, of course. And we have weather, I didn't talk about this, but we have certain weather restrictions. In fact, it's pretty much got to be cab okay, I guess they call it these days, for a first flight in a long time, like that eight-year jet. Because if everything just completely craps out on you in flight, but it's still flying, then you want to be able to navigate back just looking out the window kind of thing. But yes, you're checking pretty much everything. Do your post-maintenance check flights require a chase aircraft to do a clean and dry check on you? No. That's interesting. You might think that, but especially at the depot, that would be very hard to do because once an airplane was good to go, we might, like I alluded to earlier, fly it briefly for proficiency because these aircraft don't always come out very quickly. And so when an airplane is good to go, we try to get everybody a flight or two in it. And we also would call that just, hey, we want to make sure the product we're going to give is good. And then also we would fly it like I said, in that greenish yellow, it would go off to the paint locker, maybe spend a week or two there, come back, would fly it again just to make sure nothing crazy happened in paint. And then someone would deliver it as well. So yeah, usually three pilots at that time at the depot could all fly one particular airplane, somebody the post-maintenance, somebody the post-paint, and then somebody the delivery, if not a couple more. So you're lined up for takeoff now. Is it a standard land runway takeoff? So you can do post-maintenance check flights from the carrier. There are slightly different procedures for what you have to do on the catapult. And there are certain things you can't do really on the taxiing just because of the carriers. But at North Island, they would know when we use the depot call sign and also see us taxiing around in yellow and green, they had a pretty good idea that we were going to be 
sort of a problem child. Most aircraft get on the runway. I'm sure you do this in your Piper Archer. You might even make a broadcast call. Hey, everybody, I'm taking this runway for takeoff to the south. What do you do? You get on, you advance the throttle, and you go. Well, in a jet that is doing a pro, FCF, whatever we're calling it, they're all synonymous. You get on, and I'll generally tell them anyway, hey, I'll be a couple minutes on the runway. And what you do is we ran up the engine to start the other engine in the line, but now I'm actually, Ken, running one engine at a time all the way up to full military power. So that's not afterburner, that's military. And one at a time, the brakes will still hold it. So I run it up, I hold it for a second, make sure everything looks good, then I bring it all the way back to idle and all the way back to military before it has a chance to get to idle. So it's almost like a throttle slam. And I'm just making sure that there's not some valve that's, opening when it shouldn't or not opening when it should or some other kind of just issue that could happen, maybe a stall or something else. So we, we do a little bit of that, mostly with the engines. And once we're good to go, yeah, then sometimes if they tell me to line up and wait, I'll say, hey, can I do run-ups? And they'll say, sure, but it's not clearance to go. But if they say you're clear for takeoff, I'll say, hey, I'm going to be about a minute. And then either way, if it's line up and wait, I'll say, hey, I'm ready. Okay, you're clear for takeoff. So once you're cleared, then you go to military for both engines. You look at it. Then you go to full afterburner. You're watching that the nozzle's open. Everything looks good. And then from that point for the next just couple minutes, it's just a regular takeoff. Hey, I just want to get airborne safely because Ken, as you know, as a pilot, the landing and takeoff transitions are among the most dangerous activities an aircraft can do. So at that point, you're just taking off. For a post-maintenance check flight out of uh, North Island, are you allowed to use any runway, obviously based on length and wind and all that, or are you restricted to certain runways? Because if something goes wrong, they don't want to have you taking off over, say, a populated area. We were never limited for that reason, but the base itself would have certain course rules that they would prefer you, for example, on the weekends to take off on the southbound runway. And uh, during the weekday, generally we would take off on the westbound runway. But to your point, that points you right into that wall of Point Loma over there. And so the maneuver that you do is once you get airborne, again, at that point, I'm not worried about a check flight. I'm just trying to safely aviate, navigate, communicate my airplane. And so uh, listeners of the show might remember the Tiger Cruise episode that we did as a tribute to my fallen brother is at the end of that episode, we talked about him being out there when I took off on the runway 29, I believe it was. And the course rule state, as soon as safely airborne, turn left immediately to south. And it just so happened that that left turn immediately flew right over his head at 50 or 100 feet on top of a little building where he was out of the depot facility watching me take off. So generally speaking, as long as the winds are supporting, they would like you to take off either westbound or southbound. When you climb out, are you an afterburner? Yes. And what altitude do you level out at? Uh, that's based on course rules. So I think around here, it used to be up to two or 4,000 feet. It's been a few years. I don't exactly remember. But there's so many airports here in San Diego. Oh, oh so that's an airspace restriction, not a, a maintenance issue. So Correct. I assume you want to just get clear of the San Diego class Bravo airspace. That's correct. And at that point, again, I'm just flying the airplane. I'm not worried about checking it. I'm flying it. Are you going to be doing your functional check flight maneuvers over the water or over the land? They can be done over land, but for the depot, our working area was over the ocean. So what do you, when you want to get on condition to do your functional work, what's the first altitude you're going to? Uh, golly, what did we used to do first? Well, I don't remember anymore the exact order, Ken, 
But I will say this. So we have whiskey areas, as we call them, which is just whiskey for the letter W, warning areas over the water for concentrated military training. And so we would have, let's say, surface to 40,000, 50,000 feet or surface to unlimited sometimes. And the airliners all knew to stay clear. And typically people like you and your Piper Archer, I think also would stay clear. And so I w- it was still seeing a void. And I would use my radar and listen to the controlling agency, which for here was, um, gosh, who was it? Was it Beaver? Man, it's amazing the things you forget about after a few years. But at any rate, the FAC, the Fleet Air Control Surveillance Facility, would kind of be the ones who would watch over you in these warning areas. And so if they had traffic, they would alert you. But otherwise, you're just kind of listening for them to maybe alert you. Otherwise, you have checks that you do, Ken, at 10,000 feet, at about 20,000 feet, and up above 35,000 feet. And these are all... You're looking at things like flight controls, propulsion, environmental, fuel, the whole works. Correct. Everything. So we we deliberately go up high to check our environmental controls. You're right about that. Typically in the middle of about 20,000 feet, do some different flight control checks. We also check our radar, make sure it's working right and mapping where it should be. Check our radios, including our automatic direction finders. So we try to pick the ATIS and try to go ADF to that and see that it's pointing correctly. We check really everything, including the engine. So those throttle slams I told you about on the runway, we do those again up at altitude. And then from that, we also do a mock run, which is where you go to full afterburner. My technique was I'd be at about 40,000 feet, go to Mach 1.1 and full afterburner. Then you could bunt, but that's a little uncomfortable. So I got to the point where I do a very gentle roll to inverted and a very gentle pull down so I don't bleed my energy to about 45 degrees nose low, still in full afterburner. And once I was above Mach 1.23, I would pull both engines out of afterburner. Then one at a time, I would pull them from military to idle and back. And you were making sure that the RPM didn't drop because there was this mill lockout situation for that speed that you had to just check that it in fact didn't retard the engine too far. So you did one at a time. Meanwhile, you're screaming downhill, Mach 1.25, et cetera, 1.3 that is. And you know, the ocean's getting big, but also the air's getting thicker. So if you don't get it right away, you might find yourself not able to hit 1.23, which believe it or not, not to burst, I hope too many bubbles out there, but even a clean Hornet or Super Hornet has a little bit of trouble at full afterburner, 45 degree dive, getting very fast. So whenever someone says, oh, you know, the F-18 can do Mach 1.8, I say, yeah, on paper. I've seen 1.65 and that was a very concentrated effort. That sounds like a lot of fun, that maneuver. Yeah, it's fun. But it's a little, that you know, when I was teaching new FCF pilots, that was one of those hey, this is what the book says. This is the technique I use. Because if you don't get it the first time, you're going to burn a lot of gas going back up to do it again. Does the FRC, the Fleet Readiness Center, have a radio room that's staffed when you're flying in case you have questions or problems? Yes. So if Vern was flying, I might be by the radio. And if uh, Sunshine was flying, Vern might be by the radio. So yeah, we'd always have someone back there to help them read the book, as we put it. And do you always have a radio tuned to that radio room or is that only as needed? Uh, I mean, you could move it quickly if you needed to, but generally speaking, since we weren't doing tactics, we would have one on FaxFac and one on the base. Yes. And if you ran into a problem, would you typically call down and say, Hey, what should I do? Or, well, so at that point, if it just fails the check, 
if something is supposed to happen, but it doesn't, but it's not necessarily a malfunction or an emergency, then you might continue going through the checklist, believe it or not, just so that you can get as many things done as you can based on the severity of the item that failed. Because ultimately, the more information you can provide the maintenance folks when you return, the better. And let's say I do step seven and it fails, Ken, but I can keep going. And step 13 also failed. Well, if I didn't check that, now they wouldn't know that until the next check flight. And so we're trying to get it done relatively efficiently, but also it gives the folks to work on check seven and the folks maybe on check 13 are different. They can both work on that at the same time. So you try to do as much as you could, but if let's say I'm doing something and you know, God forbid a firelight comes on or the flight control whole surface just completely X's out on the flight control page. And it says, Hey, I'm done working for you, dude. You know, I'm just going to lock in this position. Okay. You're done. And at that point, the check flight is over. Now you handle it per just being a NATOPS qualified F-18 pilot. Is this an emergency? If so, declare it. Now that same runway that I took off maybe to the south, I'm going to land heading to the north because I want to stay over the water the whole time. Hey, Vern, this is what I got. What do you think? This is what I'm thinking about doing. Yeah, that sounds good. Okay, let's do it. And so it's not uncommon, frankly, on an aircraft that hasn't flown in a long time and been through such significant maintenance to have problems and not pass first time. And in fact, that eight-year jet didn't have any emergencies, but it did not fully pass the uh, FCFA. Are there any emergencies where you say, I don't want to land at North Island. I want to go up to Edwards. It's not too far away and it's got a 15,000 foot runway and uh, potentially a lake bed if it's not wet. Was that ever part of your contingency planning? No. And I'll tell you why. Number one, we didn't really train to that anyway, but I think it's for these other reasons I'll tell you about. Number two, first off, I have to fly over populated areas to do that. Number three, I might not have the fuel because, again, we just didn't plan to that. But number four, and most importantly, in an F-18 with a tail hook and an airport like North Island right over the water, it's almost like a carrier in that regard. If I'm worried about my controls, Ken, I'm going to fly down. And in fact, in the fleet, they might even have LSOs that'll go out there and wave you into the gear. But my point is, if I'm worried that maybe one of my landing gear is going to swerve me to the side, then I'm going to try to fly down and spot the deck as Jamboy teased me about on a recent episode and try to land right just exactly in front of that arresting gear on the runway. And it's going to pull me to a brief stop. And that's as good as it gets. I, there's really, I can't think of, well, I guess if, if something caused me to be super fast, I guess that might be one reason to go to a longer runway, but no, it's not something we generally uh, talked about as a common contingency. Is there only one landing or do you do multiple passes in the pattern? If the aircraft is good to go, there's only one required landing in the pro deck, but we would typically do a couple because again, well, let's ring this thing out. Now, again, if I'm back in my squadron, hey, it's been uh, 30 days and this jet just needs its regular pro. Okay, fine. I know because we flew it 30 days ago or a week ago and all they did was replace the rudder. But on the other hand, if I want the flight time, yeah, I might do a couple touch and goes. How many test flights did it typically take to buy off an airplane after a maintenance at the uh, depot? Usually more than one, which I realize is not a very useful answer. Even if a jet maybe was only there for the uh, PMCI, I think is what they called it, like the checkup I was talking about, like when you go to see your doctor every four years, let's say, at least that's when the airplane would come in was every four or so. If it was one of those and it, they didn't see a whole lot when they pulled it apart, 
then yeah, it might pass once and maybe they go paint it or maybe it never got the yellow and green anyway. But we'll typically do at least one more flight before we deliver it for a couple of reasons. Now, if it's just over to Miramar, we might not. We might just deliver it as soon as it's ready. But if it's over to Oceana, here's the thing, Ken. I don't want to get to Albuquerque or St. Louis. And now suddenly something that if we'd have just flown it a little more now is rearing its ugly head. Now suddenly you have to send a rescue debt on the road with various parts and all that. So we typically fly it a few times, but it's not uncommon to take three or four tries for an airplane. And I don't remember what it was for the eight-year jet, but it was at least three, I want to say, I remember that it took before it passed the FCF. What were the typical kinds of problems that you found during the post-maintenance check flights? Everything imaginable. Sometimes certain things might not be reinstalled correctly. So if it came loose, then you would have whatever indication it was from that. Generally, that's not, I mean, there's such good quality assurance these days. That's typically not a problem. A bigger problem is they take something out. And again, I I mentioned this earlier. So let's say a jet comes in with all these different boxes for stores, management computers and radars and flight controls, et cetera, et cetera. And they do some basic desk checks on these things. But let's say they put the original back in and I go out and fly it and that box just chooses that day to break. Well, then all of a sudden you might have a caution for your air data computer going belly up or your stores management computer or something else. Is the data that you're presenting on failures, is that kneeboard kind of notes or is or do you have a system that's collecting that data on the aircraft? Well, the aircraft does bring some data back to you. And I think the F-35 is pretty much reporting everything these days. And they'll pull some of that data. But what the maintenance crew will look for from me when I return is that anecdotal data. What did you hear when this thing happened? When this switching valve failed, did you hear or feel anything in the stick, for example, right? It's a fly-by-wire. You shouldn't feel anything in the stick. But there is that hydromechanical backup. So if you find you're feeling something or you get a certain indication, that's going to help them. So we really became pretty good at anticipating what questions they would ask and kind of putting it through the ringer as much as you safely could to see what it was that could be wrong with that airplane. So you can give them the best data for them to then go in and start looking for the problem. Are you uh, pulling G's to the limits? Yes. That was one of the checks was to pull the about seven and a half G's. And what you're watching for there is the leading edge flaps to program down symmetrically. Symmetrically, obviously. What is the process for reporting deficiencies and debriefing with uh, the maintainers so you can uh, communicate issues and uh, get them fixed before the next flight? In a fleet squadron, you might have codes. When you're 10 minutes out from base, you might say base 402 and 407 are 10 minutes out alpha. And that way they know, okay, they're up. Yeah, we might discover, this is maintenance talking, we might discover some little gripes that they are not aware of, but it it should be good to go to fly on the rest of today's flight schedule. Or conversely, hey, base 403 and 407, 10 minutes out, 403 is alpha, 407 is going to be down for whatever, radar. Okay, Roger, now they know, hmm, okay, well, let's at least get the ATs ready to go. They're going to go out and meet that jet, pull it right away, maybe even have a couple common components on hand, especially on the carrier, because space is such a premium. That jet is already up on the roof, as they call it. Well, do we need to start pulling one out of the hangar, or can we fix it in time for the next launch? At the depot, generally speaking, I would call 10 minutes out, hey, I'm on my way back. And I would give them as much information as I could because we're not worried about con brevity or anything, but not read too much. Hey, jet's going to be up 
but we're going to talk about this, you know, or, hey, it didn't pass for this reason, flight controls, or, hey, I'll just talk to you guys when I land. In other words, it's going to need another couple of weeks, maybe even a couple of months, depending on what the problem is for them to dig back in. Because you got to remove things, right? You got to pull engines sometimes to get to other things. So I would try to tell them as much as I could. And then once I landed, Ken, it was always funny, you know, I got all these guys looking at you with this pensive air of, uh, you know, hey, uh, how is it? And as soon as you step down, you just get mobbed, right? So there's a couple more checks you have to do at the end. But as soon as you step down, everybody wants to hear everything. So you've got this crowd around you. It's almost like being a celebrity. And I would just tell them, hey, this is what I saw on this check. This didn't pass for this reason. One of the checks we have to do, I'll just tell you this one real quick, Ken, is somewhat subjective in so much as they rig the airplane, right? It's not as straight as an arrow as the day it was when it was made. They have all these things they have to do with the leading edge flaps, trailing edge flaps, the rudders. And what they're trying to do is they want you to make sure you have no autopilot or any trim in. And at different speeds, you let go of the stick and you count how long, or you use the, the clock in the HUD, how long it takes to roll to 30 degrees. And sometimes they're rock steady. Sometimes they roll right away. Sometimes they roll fast at 200 knots, but slow at 500 knots. It's the weirdest thing. So when you tell them all that, then if it just barely almost doesn't pass, I'll do it a couple times, just make sure I, I didn't screw it up or something or start the timing wrong. But they'll want to know all that. And which way did it go? Did it go left or did it go right? And how much time did it take, et cetera? So they just want to know everything because for the maintenance folks to get everything done, get it off the books and get it back to the customer. That is basically, and this is the terminology we would use. Hey, we sold it back. So imagine a business is making something. They want to sell it to a customer. Well, we send it back to the squadron that brought it to us in the first place. That's what we call selling it back. And like a business, that's when we would get paid theoretically. No, absolutely. If you have a wing, I mean, these are real physical objects. These are not theoretical things. And if you have a wing or a stabilator or something like that, that's a couple hundredths of a degree off, that will have a noticeable effect. Especially and, at 550 knots, which is the highest speed we had to do those roll checks. That's right. And you can't just straighten those things out necessarily. I mean, with a stabilator, you might be able to just go in and ever so slightly adjust something, but they're, they're real aircraft. They're not theoretical aircraft. That's right. Any interesting stories from your days of doing these kind of flights? No, thank goodness. I don't think I ever declared an emergency in the two years. Well, year and a half. Uh, how long was it? Yeah, almost almost two years. I can't think of an emergency that I ever declared. My big claim to fame is the one I've been talking about this whole time was the jet hadn't flown in eight years. And uh, I don't know. I, I think I've talked to some people who said, I wouldn't touch that thing with a 10-foot pole. I said, I wanted to do it. And partly I wanted to do it because it's just something to brag about. But also, it just tells the guys who are telling me this thing's ready to fly that I believe you. Uh, and I have faith in you. And oh, by the way, it always has an ejection seat, which also has been out of the jet and probably overhauled. But, you know, I uh, I did break down one time in Albuquerque and spent an extra couple of days there and was bored out of my mind. But they don't just let you come home because as soon as it's ready, they want someone to fly it away or go do another check flight. So I ended up spending, I think, two or three days in a hotel in Albuquerque. But you always pack on those flights, right? A toothbrush and a couple of days clothes just because you never know. And um, I delivered jets to, golly, China Lake, Miramar, Lamore, Oceana, Pensacola, took a Blue Angel jet to them. I never took a jet to Jacksonville, which I wish I would have done because that was where I was a brand new F-18 pilot 20 years before. And um, 
Flew a little bit at night. I flew through some thunderstorms trying to deliver one time. Oh, to Pax River also, Maryland. Took some up there. But it's always this great, and this doesn't necessarily have anything to do with post-maintenance check flights, but just trying to get across the country. It's always a function of, do I stop more and make gas less of an issue? Or do I go higher so I can go farther and stop less frequently? Because then you're less likely to break down, but then you have less options with less fuel. And so I painted myself into a corner and had to plug right through a thunderstorm one time. And I think when I was talking to air traffic control, my voice was probably a couple octaves higher because <laughs> he sort of, he didn't call me on it, but it was clear that he was concerned for me just based on the pitch of my voice. And there was lightning all around me and I wasn't holding the stick. I just had my hand next to it. And I had, you know how like Ken, when in certain places, when you walk on carpet floor and you reach for the door handle and you get that little static shock. Yes. I got one of those between the stick and my finger because it was close enough. And there was just that much static electricity building up in this thunderstorm. And so that really got my attention. Does FRC Southwest do overhauls on any of the Hornets that are operated by our allies, Canada, Australia, Spain, Kuwait, Finland? Not to my knowledge. We didn't while I was there. Whether that had been done in the past or not, I'd not heard of when I was there. And my guess is we're probably, well, maybe I guess we're closest for Australia, but that's such a logistical haul for them that my guess is we probably, as part of that deal, either established something down there or just taught them, here's the things you need to do. But you bring up a good point, Ken, that we haven't mentioned yet. One of the things that we did for the F-18 fleet, and I think other countries did this too, is a center barrel replacement. Are you familiar with that expression? It's a fus- part of the fuselage, and it, sometimes it gets, I think, a lot of stress cracks from fatigue. So it would be like me going in, in my earlier analogy, to the hospital, and they said, all right, Vincent, we're going to take your spine out today and give you a new spine. And so, of course, that would be a dreadful surgery, and it is a dreadful procedure for an F-18 to get a new center barrel. I mean, it's for those who, like I do, enjoy some of these car shows, like with Chip Foose, who will take an old Corvette or Mustang or something and take it down to the most, as far as he can go, bolts and nuts and frames and components and refurbish each part of those. Well, imagine maybe a car getting a new frame or a new body. A center barrel replacement is the very core structure, at least for an F-18A through D Hornet, that yes, they... Well, first off, they found that we can extend the life if we replace these. And now we mitigate some of our strike fighter shortfall from the slow F-35 or whatever else. And by slow, I mean development, not speed. And so we did that there. And the contraptions that they used, they used to use these amazing jigs with lasers, laser beams, here's my air quotes, to align these things just right so that they could essentially replace the spine of these aircraft. And they did it well. And so, yeah, pretty amazing. What if I not asked you that you're dying to tell me about uh, (laughs) working at the uh, Fleet Readiness Center Southwest? Yeah. Well, there are, I think, thousands of people who work there. And for the locals of Coronado who have to deal with the traffic every morning at about 5 a.m. and every afternoon at about 2.30, as these hundreds and thousands of workers come on and off, my apologies on their behalf, but we are doing, I think, a good thing for the local economy, certainly, for these people with these specialized skills to have high-paying, high-quality technical jobs. And we're doing a good thing for the Navy and the Marine Corps. 
in so much as when I was there, we were still helping with Hornets, now more so Super Hornets, but also all these other aircraft that I didn't have a role in, but were also done at the FRC Southwest, including the CH-53s by nearby Miramar. Now, you remember I said earlier, some of the pilots are assigned there. The 53 aircraft, CH-53s, would come out of overhaul and Marines would come down from Miramar and do those post-maintenance check flights. And as I understand it, they also were briefed, hey guys, this isn't just a regular FCF, this is post-maintenance. So real, you know, so they had a handful of senior pilots who had done FCFs for a long time who they would call on, probably wing staff guys. But the depot, I think, is one of these unheralded, not the sexiest, but vitally important billets and, and roles and, and organizations that is really helping the taxpayer, I would argue, get the best bang for his and her buck because we are extending the life of these aircraft where we can. We are repairing these aircraft. We had, Ken, it's heartbreaking, but we had brand new growlers there that had been involved in fires and in-flight fires in some cases. And you're looking at the, the numbers on these. They weren't built all that long ago. And it's a shame to see them in such new situation in there. But they had, like my earlier analogy, been in a car crash, let's say, or had an, had an emergency or cut a finger off or whatever. And so they were there. And then also just the aircraft that come through just to make sure every four, eight, 12 years that they are still suitable for fleet service. And then off they go again. And also, we didn't really talk about this, but we had a lot of really amazing manufacturing ability at FRC Southwest. We had 3D printing and people that could do amazing work just with metal and composites and engines and canopies and all these different things. And that would sometimes be lent out to those AIMD and ships and people would travel to use that expertise for, hey, this is what they're seeing in the fleet. We need to take this out and show them how to do this. So... I think the FRC Southwest, as a representative, just from my own personal experience of all the FRCs out there, is one of these organizations that does a good job, needs to continue to be properly funded, and should be considered like an institution. One of the reasons why the United States of America, and particularly the Navy and Marine Corps in this case, can be so effective and uh, so worthy of the dollars that we have for our aviation, because we really do make them stretch as far as possible in the ways that I discussed. Great. What's coming up on the Fighter Pilot Podcast? Yeah, besides a golly hour and a half rambling about uh, the depot and post maintenance check flights. Well, yeah, I should almost ask you that as well. But for me, I've got episodes coming up on organizations that are helping different, shall I say, industries out there by taking some of the military's best practices and applying them to consulting. So we've got that. We've still got one coming up on Top Gun trained adversaries and adversary aircraft and roles related to that. Lining up some F-111 guys to come back and talk some more because our previous F-111 crew were Australian and just thought it'd be fun to get an Air Force version of that. So we're looking into that. And uh, other than that, I mean, I'm always on the lookout for people with great stories and for guest co-hosts like you, Ken, to help out as well. So can I put that question back at you? Well, I've got a long line of, of people who I am sort of have talked with interviewing, and now I just have to uh, get some time to do it. But every time I go to Society of Flight Test Engineers, or for that matter, Oshkosh, I meet more people and add them to the list. So there's some very interesting stuff out there that people are working on, and I'm looking forward to talking to some of those people 
on future episodes. Great. Well, we're always looking for content from uh, folks like you, Ken, so keep it up. Well, it was a pleasure to have uh, not so much me on the other side of the mic, because I'm often on this side of the mic, but have you on the other side of the mic. Yeah, well, thanks. I enjoyed it. Thank you for uh, being on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, and uh, we'll be talking next week. We certainly will. All right, Ken, thanks for having me, I suppose. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet show that explores the fascinating world of air combat. Visit our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com, for a blog, a glossary of the terms used on this show, and a shop page featuring unique military aviation-themed books and apparel. Check out our YouTube channel to watch hundreds of military aviation-themed videos. And for exclusive content, head on over to our Patreon page. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.